You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoan refugees, and everyone planning on dressing up as an amenthi demon for trick-or-treat. It is time to receive an extra spooky Omega Halloweeny landmark 70th edition of your Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of the Weird Science family. I am your host, Jason, broadcasting as always from the Wrong Turn Studio high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and here with me live from a very boring speech by Captain America is my man, Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you this week? Not not to give a sneak preview of anything coming up later, but uh, what a snoozer. Oh my God, that's hilarious too. I loved everybody fist bumping him. I was like, yeah, this is like what you'd expect him to do. But it's Cap being Cap, but oh bringing wow. the flag was like awful. I was like, "Come on, Captain America!" Like- we'll, we'll we'll rag on that in a little bit. Uh, before that, we have four issues we're going to talk about this week. Now, listeners may think, "But hey, there were there were at least seven Krakoa related issues this week," and that's true. But the ones we're going to talk about today are Alpha Flight number three hundred five, Dark X Men number three hundred five. Uncanny Avengers number three of five, and Jean Grey number three of four. So another week of penultimate and mostly anti-penultimate issues. Uh, one issue that I talked about with Jim that's over on the Marvel podcast is Uncanny Spider-Man number two of five. So if you want to hear us talking about what Nightcrawler's up to, you can head on over there. And uh, we're kicking two books to next week. Those are Ms. Marvel The New Mutant number three and Realm of X number three. Because there's just a whole lot of books this week and almost no books next week. So we figured we'd spread things out a bit. Uh, have you uh, happened to read those other two books yet, Ruben? I have not. I'm hoping that the Uncanny Spider-Man lifts my opinion of the books this week because I was kind of bored slash disappointed. There were some ups and downs. I mean, we are on the those tie-in series or all what's going on this week. And some of them seem a little bit like padding, but we'll get to them uh, specifically as we go on. Uh, another thing people should know about is that Jim also talks about the Wolverine versus Predator comic on the Marvel show this week. So if you're interested in that, you should also head over there after listening to us, of course. And uh, in a little bit of news, well, two small items of news. The first one is, for the first time in like forever, there are no new books announced this week. No new miniseries, no new end of this, no new resurrection of that. Unless I missed it, please don't tell me. No new books this week, thank goodness. And finally, uh, there is a little bit of a crossover being hinted at. Al Ewing is writing The Immortal Thor. And at the end of issue number two, we do see Storm for one panel. You know, Al Ewing loves Storm. Looks like he's going to be bringing Storm in to help Thor fight another Storm God. So, hey, who else would you call it? So that is the new stuff. Anything you want to add, uh, Ruben, before we head on into our first book? Nope. Let's jump in. Okay. Our first book is Alpha Flight. Number three of five, Divided We Stand, part three. Written by Ed Brisson, art by Scott Godleski, colors by Matt Miller, letters by Travis Lanham, designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Now, this cover promises us Nemesis Reveal. Listeners, you may remember that when I was discussing the first issue of the series, I mentioned how over the decades of Alpha Flight history, there had been three different people in the Marvel Universe who used that nemesis name and costume. And I said, I was I was pretty confident. I'd done my poking around, my little investigating. I thought this nemesis was Jane Thorne, nemesis of the 1990s, based on how she used the sword and the teleportation gimmick. Now, listeners, was, was I correct? The final panel of this issue holds the answer. 
Spoiler, I wasn't. So there is some <laughs> cool stuff in this issue. It takes the Orcus threat more seriously than a lot of the other books. I mean, you know, Wolverine, for example, or Uncanny Avengers. And it shows us the toll that all of this is taking on, on, on the people, on members of the team, on the mutants who are trying to help, which I think is a good thing to show. So let's remember our setup. Canada has thrown in its lot with Orcus. The government is using Department H, including Alpha Flight, to track down and capture any mutants they can still find in their territory. The non-mutant members of Alpha Flight are playing along, pretending to be loyal members of Department H, but are secretly working with the, their now outlawed mutant members to smuggle innocent mutants to northern Manitoba, where everyone wants to be, from whence they hope to eventually tra- transport a lot of them <laughs> to safety on Chandelar, not Chandler, R.I.P., Chandelar, the Shi'ar homeworld. Uh, so, yeah, northern Manitoba. Are you familiar with Manitoba, Ruben? Ever vacation there? No, I'm not. That's a cool name. I like the I like the bands called Manitoba. If well, that I'm familiar counts. with them. They're really good. I, I checked the map, but geography not my strong suit either. Uh, but they are north of North Dakota. So if you think North Dakota is just too warm and temperate for your tastes, go ahead to Manitoba. And then specifically, uh, they're what do they call it? Krakoa North is in northern Manitoba. So pack pack a sweater, guys. Yeah. Uh, so the boss of Department H, Erica Doiron, not happy with the performance of her team of supers. I mean, <laughs> why do these mutants keep getting away? Aren't you guys like powered and got your costumes and stuff? What's what's going on? I mean, well, this team's why. about as effective as you would expect a Canadian team to be. So oh. I, I don't know what she is expecting. International incident caused by our co-host here. <laughs> All letters to Ruben. So, uh, yeah. There is one loyal member of the team, at least as far as we know, their robot building guy, Roger Box Jr. He is honestly trying to cap the mutants, but he's the only one, and his robots are not nearly as good as, like, Stark Sentinels. They're, what do you call them, Box Sentinels? Yeah. Yes. Not not super effective. So a former member of the Alpha Flight Cheap team- Cheap Canadian from, engineering, again, what would you expect? How dare you? A former <laughs> member of the team, Albert Lewis- Possibly Albert Louis, he is Canadian, mutant name Feedback, has been discovered by Orcas hiding out on the west coast of the U.S., so Department H sends a squad of robotic box sentinels south to assist in his capture, and then the mutant side of Alpha Flight follows to try to rescue him. Boy, that's a lot of setup. But uh, we join that fight already in progress, which, as usual, not going super great for Department H. Uh, the mutants are beating up on the robots pretty good. Albert and the mutant crew in Oregon finally decide that they're they're ready to bug out. Nemesis teleports them moments before the box sentinels unload a killer blast of lasers at them, which makes you wonder why Roger didn't have his sentinels use that technique to begin with. Oh well. Uh, they do get a shot in on uh, Nemesis shortly before she teleports, and that'll be big later. So we take a breather from the action to check in with the refugees holed up in Krakoa North, up there in the wilds of northern Manitoba. And we eavesdrop on a conversation between Kyle and the rescued mutant Argent, who doesn't want to be called Argent anymore, just his human name, Laurent. Laurent is just sick of all this crap. He's tired of running, tired of hiding, probably tired of northern Manitoba, and not (laughs) thrilled with the idea of being sent for safekeeping all the way to another freaking planet with aliens and stuff, right? This This is not the life he signed up for. Kyle tries to convince him, hey, this is the only way to be safe. But Laurent walks off saying, I, I just want to go home. And yeah, this is a side of the whole situation we haven't seen before. Just, and it's very relatable, I think. Just, you know, whether it's just thinking back to pandemic stuff or people who've been through difficult times. Sometimes you just want to say, you know what? I'm, 
I'm done with all this. I know I'm supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z, but I'm exhausted and, and let me off. I want, I want out. And I thought that was a cool way of, of showing that. What, what did you think of this little interaction? I thought this was okay, but I went back to my sort of eye rolling moments of like, this is like 22 people, right? And there's supposed to be a couple thousand left. So it doesn't seem like they're doing a lot of good saving them. And I'm just like, get this guy out of here. Like, I know they want to save everybody, but obviously he's got issues, right? Um, so I don't, I don't know. Okay, I guess I was a little, I was a little more empathetic with uh, yes. poor, poor Lauren than, than maybe you are. Yeah, uh, you just, you're just mad because Lauren's Canadian and clearly everything against Canadians. <laughs> I joke about that. To be clear, to oh, be clear, course, I love, I love my Canadian people, but no, it's more, it's more like I, I usually don't have this problem, but I just don't connect to these characters so i'm just really struggling with with um getting excited about this series i'm curious to see what happens with lauren i mean can they let him leave i mean he knows where their secret base is he knows that alpha flight is only pretending to work at apartment h so even if they want to say okay you don't want to be here we're not going to make you he knows way too much i think i'm not sure if that's going to play into the next couple issues but I, i think it might I am okay. interested in the idea of sending them to Chandelar. I, I, for some reason, I suspect we're not actually going to get to Chandelar. I think that things are going to progress in the rest of the mutant world to make this whole plan either untenable or not necessary. That, that's my guess, but you see how good my guesses are so far. So we, we may have noticed in this whole Krakoa North scene that the whole team that rescued feedback, Albert, they're not there. They had just teleported away from Oregon. They should be at Krakoa North. But we didn't see him. It turns out that Nemesis, who we know had been pushing herself a bit too hard for a couple issues now, she didn't have the oomph left to get the team all the way home. I mean, part also because she had just taken some some zaps from the box sentinels. She did get the team across the border into Canada, but just barely. They're in Turtle Mountain Provincial Park, which Google Maps tells me is right on the North Dakota border. So literally, you know, two, three, maybe 10 miles across the border. I didn't understand how they tracked them to this location. Oh, like if yeah, if they were thing. able to tr- if they were able to track them as soon as they appear, like why couldn't they have done this before? Like how hard is it really to keep tabs on there them? There was something about Krakoa North that was set up to block tracking. Exactly okay. how the tracking, I'm not sure, but they, there was some hand waving about yeah, Krakoa North is safe. Okay, so until you're there, it's possible that I, I think that's how we're playing it. Okay, so yeah, they are they are being tracked by Department H, and Department H uh, Doran there sends those official members of Alpha Flight as okay, they're back on Canadian territory now. Go get them. Which again, we know that's not going to work out well for her, but. She doesn't know that quite yet. So we get two final surprises in this issue. The first comes up in a conversation there in Turtle Mountain between Dakin, who we're supposed to call Fang now, North Star, and that just rescued Albert. That's a little complicated here. Dakin tells Albert all about this issue of Marauders that I didn't read. I, I don't think you read. Uh, in this issue, mutant Albert Lewis, a.k.a. Feedback, accidentally blew himself up to death and in the process, killed a bunch of people. We, I did mention this, I think, when we talked about the first issue of the series, but we dismissed it as like a continuity glitch. Oh, he wasn't really dead kind of thing. Turns out there were two Albert Lewises. The original, who presumably is the one in front of us on the panel, and a clone that Albert made himself using Department H tech, and he left that clone behind to do his job while he went somewhere else, which I think we've all fantasized about at one point or another in our lives. Not the most heroic act ever. So then that clone is the one who died. 
And the original Albert moved to California, changed his name, started a family, and wound up in issue one of the series. That was a cool concept. Yeah, this was the bit that was most interesting to me because I appreciated that the, I think it was Fang was really like saying like, that's pretty self-absorbed and ruthless. Like, what kind of monster are you, right? Like, just the clone had, you know, thoughts and aspirations and dreams and you just set it up for this horrible torture and all that. I thought that was, that, that part was good. It wasn't. It feels kind of late in the whole Krakoan story to start questioning the morality of cloning. Treating clones, yeah. <laughs> hey, how dare you make clones of yourself? Hmm, yeah, okay. Yeah. It, it adds some, some texture and complexity to the story, and that was kind of neat. The time to reveal the final secret. Nemesis still worn the heck out, and she still wants to try to teleport them off the safety, and instead she kills over may possibly be dying. So Aurora pulls Nemesis' mask off just as the official Alpha Flight members arrive. Nemesis is not Jane Thorne, as my guess. Nemesis is also not Isabel St. Ives, the original Nemesis, nor is she Amelia Weatherly, the Nemesis of the early 2000s. This Nemesis is Heather McNeil, which is a huge reveal for all both of you old-schooled Alpha Flight fans out there. So, Ruben, <laughs> were you able to did it knock you over? Did you have to take a little break and go for a walk after seeing <laughs> Heather McNeil revealed here? Yeah, this is the part, man. I, I feel like this is probably a really good comic for somebody that <laughs> is a hardcore Alpha Flight fan. And I, I wish that was me and it just isn't. Yeah, I was just like, okay, I get it. She's I, I have read connected to the Guardian. original run of Alpha Flight, the John Byrne issues at least. Not all the yeah. stuff in between. But so I, I recognized Heather McNeil. I thought that was a, a cool thing. Yeah. But Heather has been around since Alpha Flight. Issue number one. So she is a, a main character of the whole saga. She's been married to Guardian, James Hudson, the guy in the Canadian flag suit. She's even been Guardian at times when James has been either presumed dead or when he was actually dead. Comics, it's complicated. Uh, I'm not fully up to speed on the most recent Alpha Flight stuff before the current series, so I don't know if they're currently married or what, but they have a whole lot of history together. Yeah. Sounds like it's possible that she'd be kind of a badass, too. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, she's done some cool some cool stuff. She's one of the, the, the major characters of Alpha Flight. So when James sees Heather there at the end and is shocked, I can't tell if he's shocked because he didn't know that she was Nemesis, or if he knew that and just shocked to see her in such, you know, injured, unconscious, dying maybe state. And that, I think that's intentionally ambiguous because his final words are, oh, my love, no, what did they do to you? Which you could take either way. So I, I kind of like that. But again, if you don't know who Heather McDonald is, that's that's not going to matter. Did I say it wrong? Heather McNeil. Clearly, clearly, I'm a big fan. Can't even get her name right. Heather McNeil. So yeah, that's that's the issue. Scott Galeski's art continues to look really good. Nothing too unique, but a good solid version of Marvel House style. Uh, good action, evocative facial expressions. I especially like how he draws Erica Doiron, who he makes into that kind of abusive boss we all instinctively want to dislike. I liked how Ed Brisson is adding layers to the story here that make me want to keep going. I want to know what's going to happen with Laurent, uh, the mutant who wants to just check out. I want to see if Roger Box Jr. will stay loyal to Department H or if he'll join up with our heroes. And I want to see what happens when Doriron and Department H learn that Alpha Flight isn't really working for them. And of course, I want to see the deal with Heather. I was wondering if this Box guy isn't in on it because these things were supposed to be really effective and they were like 50% of them were scrapped. <laughs> in the first combat. If if he's not, then he's really faking it very well. Right? No one's mentioning Roger on the on the on the you know the team who's teamed up with mutants. And we even see a data page that he really appears to be trying to make these 
Canadian Sentinels as strong as he possibly can. Yeah, thank so, you. If he's upgrades. hiding it, he's doing a fantastic job hiding it. Yet, we'll see where that comes. So this is not what I'd call like an important or central book in the whole Fall of X story, but what it's doing, I'm enjoying. Again, I have a little bit of Alpha Flight history, so that helps. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Ruben, I'm going to guess you're a bit lower. Yeah, quite a bit lower. Um, for somebody who doesn't care much about this, I still don't care much about this. And uh, yeah, besides laughing at the Canadians, I don't get any pleasure out of this. So for me, it's just a six. Just a six. Okay. That's yeah. one of our bigger differences. Yeah. But for me, Alpha Flight is the, my book of the week. Spoil things going forward. Not gonna it, go- it might be my book of the week and I gave it a six. Ouch. I really did not like the books this week unfortunately. Well, let's see if we can talk each other up a little bit more on our next book, which is Dark X-Men, number three of five, Darker with the Day. Written by Steve Fox, art by Jonas Scharf, colors by Frank Martin, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by both Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So at the end of issue number two, our team broke up into two groups. And so we're going to talk about their two stories separately, starting with Gambit, Maggot, Azazel, possibly Azazel, and M-Plate, who bamfed off to a small boat in the middle of the ocean to check in on Callisto and a group of Morlock types. At the end of that issue, we saw the ship being attacked by a skeletal, undead-seeming version of Warren Worthington, sent by a particularly creepy faction within Orcus. Lots of factions in Orcus these days. Very decentralized organization. Yes. So before we rejoin our battle in progress, Steve Fox gives us a quick one-pager on M-Plate. You were... You're an old time. What do you know more about, Ruben? M-Plate or <laughs> Heather McNeil? Uh, at this point, M-Plate. Okay. But, <laughs> but before I read the, both these issues, it was about the exact same. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, so M-Plate is Marius St. Croix. He's the brother of Monet. They also have two twin sisters running around. He's an energy vampire type, and he's been a villain for all of his 30-year existence up until the whole general for Cohen amnesty. He wears this kind of, it, it reminds me of an elephant, his breathing apparatus. Uh, he, that's not inherent to him. He suffered some injuries after going on some interdimensional dark magic shenanigans. I guess he's either never died and been brought back or they brought him back with the same problem. Like Cyclops always has the eye problem because he still has that uh, breathing apparatus. It's not a CPAP machine. It could be a CPAP machine. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, representation matters, Ruben. So all, all CPAP wearers can uh, can uh, see Monet or uh, M-Plate on the page and say, oh, we, we could be he superheroes. But so Fox shows us that M-Plate owes us some kind of a debt to Azazel, and I don't think we know what that is yet. It's something that happened off-panel, yet to be revealed, but it is hinted at a few times. Do you think we know anything about that, or is that an intentional secret? Okay. Good. Then I haven't missed it, like like some other things I've missed. Now, back on that, that boat, Azazel chooses not to take part in the fight, saying, hey, my thrall, M-Plate, will do that for him. Again, something's going on. And M-Plate does most of the early fighting against Angel until Gambit, who's kind of become a leader here, gets Azazel to drop him on Angel from above. And Gambit uses his make-things-explode power to, to make Angel explode, which is pretty awesome, really. It's nice no, to it see Gambit- a, I like this fight. It was pretty badass. And seeing Gambit being formidable instead of a complete failure, as we saw in the Rogue and Gambit series. It warmed my heart. And there, even when he wasn't a failure, he was like a goofball. Yeah. And here, he's, he's not a goofball. He's, he's confident, definitely, he's dangerous. Yep. Yeah, I was like, this is the Gambit I remember from the 90s. 
and it's an unusual way, but a, a legit fair playing way of using his power. And usually he makes little things explosive and throws them. Here he just makes Angel himself explode, which is a ho- horrific, but also really awesome all page there. I mean, poor Warren though, right? He was already dead. Book made that clear. He was crossed <laughs> off with a red X on the title page, his last two issues. But now he's, he's really dead. There's he's nothing left. Yeah, crossed off at this point. So do you think we're going to get the magic resurrection wand waved one more time before this is over? Or are we going to start the next era of the X-Men without a Warren Worthington? I think that the resurrection protocol is back. As, after we saw it in um, Immortal, where you got the five back together in, in the White Hot Room, I have a feeling that yeah, people you don't know exactly how real that is, but it's the the most real resurrection we've seen in a while. Yeah, I, I read that. I I thought that was real, and I I feel like maybe they will take the resurrection cue off the table, but it feels like that'll be in an event and not not in these books. Is my thought? Yeah, I, I think we might get like one, you know, get out of jail reset at the end to undo things, but I don't think going forward we'll still have resurrection. That's my probably wrong prediction about the you know the Tom Brevoort era coming up. No, that's fair. I mean, I, I could see that being the outcome, too. So, let's see where we are. So, Gambit invites Callisto and the remaining Morlocks, I mean, except the three of them who were just killed by Angel, to come on back with them to hang out at the Limbo Embassy. Callisto says, uh, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And me and the Morlocks, we're going to go off on our own, which is, you know, what Morlocks usually did before Krakoa, which, again, seemed like to be heading back towards the way things used to be with, you know, Morlocks hiding out in sewers or other dark places. And I think Maggot's going to be joining them. So Maggot has technically been a major character in this book, a member of the team. He hasn't really done all that much, so I don't know if we're going to miss him. So uh, there they will, Maggot. I've never gotten over Callisto and the fact that she died and was resurrected and then either self-mutilated or is just wearing a stylish eye patch. Yeah, let's let's talk about Callisto for a second, because she's had a, a fun arc in the Krakoan era. She started off depowered ever since M-Day, and yet Emma made her the White Knight of the Hellfire Trading Company in the first Marauders volume. And then later in that volume, she went through the Crucible, where she fought and was killed by Storm, so she could be brought back with her sensory powers restored. But yeah, you're right, she still has the eye patch, so maybe that's just fashion. Or she has all these sensory powers and enhanced vision yes. and hearing. Yes. So maybe it's just like turning down the volume for her to put an eye patch on. Yeah, it's just weird. It, I mean, this is a, a thing we've seen and argued about, not even argued about, just noticed all through Resurrection, how characters are brought back with their limitations that they really shouldn't have anymore, like Cyclops not being able to control his eye blasts. But yeah, I think this issue, again, feels like Callisto and the Morlocks exiting the whole story, which she hasn't been the most major character, but she's had a, a real arc to happen here, and I think it's been been fun to, to follow her. Yeah, Morlocks going back into the sewer. That's that's where you usually find them. I mean, we've been seeing the Morlock sewers a lot in X-Men and other books, but haven't been any Morlocks there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're just going to show up. <laughs> Be like, why is there an X-Men team in our base? <laughs> Squatters' rights. <laughs> okay, on to the other half of our book uh, in Mexico. Here we have Maddie Havoc. Faint and Zero. Havoc still not quite right from having been mostly dead at the end of issue number one. Faint being, of course, Carmen Cruz, the only teen from Children of the Atom who was a real mutant. She has shape-shifting powers and is here as the, like, like the most normal, mostly normal person who sees weird crap happen kind of character. She's, she's the only normal person here. Zero, not normal, is Kenji Uido, the disgusting body morphin mutant currently wearing a broken Orcus Logan bot Find the way a hermit crab wears a snail shell. 
just disgusting. Every panel I see him, I just say, ooh, gross. And they're off to recruit a young mutant whom Madeline saw in her vision. So this mutant is Marisol Guerra, who previously appeared in a short-lived storm ongoing, it was supposed to be an ongoing, one of those, in 2014. Uh, Marisol became a student at the Jean Grey School, didn't really take to it, and quickly returned to stay with her folks in Mexico. Now, Marisol has plant-growing powers. I guess the same kind of powers as Genesis, but presumably not you know, Omega level. Marisol has two mutant names. When she's in a happy mood, she's called Flourish, and she makes lovely flowers grow. How nice. <laughs> when she's in a sour, angry mood, she makes mushrooms and other funguses grow, which biologically speaking, aren't really plants, but I'm not going to worry about it. Marisol must be pretty annoyed to see our heroes barging into her stronghold because she has one of her mushrooms release a cloud of spores that immediately knocks every one of them the F out, like the poppy scene from The Wizard of Oz, and except for Faint, who has the presence of mind to create a gas mask for herself, which seems like a pretty advanced bit of kit to morph up on short notice. I, I guess she's been practicing. Faint definitely takes a step forward in this book. Uh, they, they want us to see her as being not just a newbie anymore, but actually an actual competent X-Men mutant. So the knocked out characters all get very brief dream sequences, none of which are so surprising. Havoc, he has brother issues. He fights Cyclops. No kidding. Kenji, totally content being <laughs> the gross weirdo he is. No psychological issues at all. Albert Loganbot? Quickly, the, the art on the Havoc uh, dream sequence cracked me up because for some reason he's shredded his clothing. And- <laughs> he is true. And his muscles. Yes. I was like, okay, dude. <laughs> hey, it's his dream. Why not? Yeah. Anyways, go on. It's, so it's pretty hilarious. You got to take Albert a look at it dream. if you're reading it. He's just a robot. Uh, and Maddie dreams about Gene and Sinister and Baby Cable, which of course is what she dreams about. And she, even she's bored about this being her only story. Her final panel might be more important. It shows a like a, a, a death type figure holding Havoc's headpiece and saying, we are inevitable, which is what this could mean a couple of things, but the most obvious meaning is that, hey, Havoc and Maddie must know this. And maybe he's not recovering slowly from his injuries. Maybe he's going the other way. Maybe he's headed off to death. Now, Faint is the only member of the team left standing, so she goes to chat with her fellow team. Hello, fellow teens. Uh, Marisol gives Faint essentially the same answer Callisto gives Gambit. Eh, yeah, no thanks. We're better off on our own. Going with you would just put us in more danger, which is. It's kind of a nice little pairing. The two halves of this book end up with the same result. Despite their efforts to, oh, we're the X-Men, we should rescue mutants. The mutants are saying, mm, no thanks, we don't want to go with you. Which is yeah. a, an interesting twist. Pretty fair, too. I mean, anyone near the X-Men is usually <laughs> not long for this world. Yeah, especially with the X-Men the way they are now. They don't have, like like Deadpool pointed out a couple of weeks ago, they don't have their island anymore. They don't have their power. What are you going to offer us? And then there's the issue of this X-Men team isn't really the X-Men team you'd want to rescue, right? It's the dark X-Men. It's, it's not Jean. It's Madeline Pryor. And it's a whole bunch of weirdos. So while this conversation is happening, the other dark X-Men wake up from their little sleep and are attacked by the Banff Dragon, that alternate universe nightcrawler who works for the creepy side of Orcus. The dragon is not very effective. He bites Kenji, but that pervert Kenji just enjoys it. Duck. Havoc blasts him, which seems effective, but also raises giant nasty boils on Havoc's arms. Yuck. Uh, Maddie goes to take a swing at it, but it bamps away. Doesn't go very far. It attacks Faint and the other Morlock-type kids just down the road. Faint seems to turn into Beast Boy here. 
And she she's a metamorph, so okay, she can change her physical situation. She gives herself pointy ears and big fists and punches the dragon right in the neck, causing it to bamf away for real. Now, frankly, I expected the bamf dragon to be more of a badass, but he's kind of a pushover, right? <laughs> yeah. Land one shot on him and, and off he goes. Yeah. Um, glass, glass jollies, as they say. Uh, and the final scene, we, we, we visit our orcus creeps for a little, little bit here. They're, again, like Erica Doiron, they're not very happy with the results that they're getting from their team for different reasons. They say one acid was destroyed, meaning Angel, another wounded, the Banff Dragon, and uh, really no results to show attacking the team. So their next target is going to be, well, it's Chasm himself, Ben Riley, the clone of Peter Parker, who right now is kind of imprisoned down there in limbo after being a co-bad guy with Maddie in the whole dark web silliness. So for me, this was a pretty decent issue. Plot-wise, nothing really progressed. I mean, we got Angel got destroyed, but he'd been dead already. Uh, I, I did like the X-Men trying to be X-Men, but getting rebuffed because this is not, you know, not your father's X-Men. This is not the X-Men's time in the sun. Maybe Faint is being pumped up a little bit beyond believability, but I'm going to try to put away my Children of the Atom prejudice and just kind of go with it. She's a new character. She's going to progress. She's going to get stronger. So the art looks really cool. The darkness of the art fits the title well. Angel Exploding was just a really cool panel, as was the reveal of Marisol in the middle of all her magic mutant mushrooms. Great colors there, too, by Frank Martin. It looked like a, like a black light kind of a poster. Cool looking book. And it looks different, right? It doesn't look like we said I liked Alpha Flight's art and that it looked like a good version of a kind of a standard Marvel art. This... It, this is a creepy book, and it looks creepy, and I, I appreciate that. I like, I like that combination. So it's another story that doesn't seem very big in the grand scheme of things, but I'm happy to keep reading. I'm especially yeah. interested to see what happens to poor Havoc, who has not had a lot of good things happen to him pretty much ever. So <laughs> not looking good for, for, for Havoc there. Yeah, poor Havoc. We've been following him through Hellions and into this, and you want to see something good happen with him, and I don't think it's going to work out for the poor guy. But I'm I'm enjoying this issue. It has, you know, some little things I didn't care for as much, but I'm going to give it a, a 7.8 out of 10. Pretty good book. Nice. Yeah. This was my book of the week. I'm going to say 7.5. I am starting to come around to your original criticisms of there being maybe too many characters that are not the core characters that you know about. And so it makes it a little bit hard to, like, appreciate what's going on. Don't all get their moment. Yeah. Right. If you see, if there's a character you know really well, you know, Spider-Man shows up, you could see him in two panels and still appreciate it because you know who Spider-Man is. But yeah. Some of these other ones, Kenji, M-Plate, uh, poor Maggot, who is, I guess is leaving the book. Yeah. Hard, hard, hard to really get a whole lot of them unless they get focused on and you can't focus on all of them because you got five issues. Yeah, exactly. So that ends up being my, my big criticism of this is a lot of cool stuff going on a lot of interesting characters like the design at least is interesting but perhaps too much going on well only two issues left and i'm i'm gonna guess we're heading towards a maddie versus alternate maddie collision at the end that would be the typical way it goes but maybe steve fox will do something less typical we'll find out in a couple months moving on to our third book of the program it is uncanny avengers number three of five the arrogance that's A-N-T-S, Arrogance, which I don't know that I understand that title, but maybe we'll figure it out together. It's written by Jerry Duggan, art by Emilio Lyso, colors by Maury Hollowell, 
Letters by Travis Lanham, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, Uncanny Avengers is a book that started pretty strong and had a good reason to exist, unlike some of the other Fall of X minis. We know why this book is around. But in my view, it's kind of going downhill every issue. About half of this issue is taken up by Cap making a corny speech about tolerance. Now, for the record, (laughs) I'm not against tolerance. I'm not against Cap. and I'm not even against corny speeches. Yeah, come on, dude. We don't need seven pages of it. Come on. Padding, padding. Everything the Cap says is so true. And I can't believe that you're against it. Oh, cancel me, Ruben. <laughs> Start the marches. He hates tolerance. We can't tolerate that. Yes. Okay. So, in the actual book, we start out with a bit of Halloween-themed content. I kind of like that. Yeah. Black Widow's sniper-rifling orchestra-themed jack-o'-lanterns. Is she on the team now? I thought she was just kind of a guest ish- guest uh, star last issue. Was she? Is she a member of Uncanny Avengers? Unclear to me. I don't know. Yeah. She's only on this one page, and maybe my favorite page of the book. Well, except for the end. We'll get to that. So Rogue runs in saying that she's received another distress distress code from Cap. And as you recall, Rogue getting a distress call from Cap on Galanite is what kicked off all of this. Team springs into action, rushes off to uh, rescue Cap. And it turns out to be an intentional false alarm. Cap is making that uh, aforementioned long corny speech on tolerance. And the rest of the team responding to his false alarm is supposed to prove his point somehow. I, I don't get it. Did you get it? I think the idea is... They thought I was in danger, and look who shows up. It's the mutants, and you guys all want to keep me safe, so these guys aren't so bad. I guess that would have been a fine one or two pager, <laughs> right? Seven page. I, I counted seven page. I mean, plus, it was like my dream sequence issue. I, I'm with you, man. I'm not going to fault you. that they would kill an increasing number of humans for every mutant they find on Earth? That shows up. Hey, so here's think- three of them in public in front of the crowd in broad daylight, right? Psylocke, Monet, the sister of M-Plate from last issue, yeah. and Rogue. That that should be a problem, or at least get get mentioned. I think you're thinking about this more than Jerry Duggan. <laughs> we, we like some of his books a lot, so I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. This book just feels like, oh, maybe this should have been a four-issue series. Mm, we got to make it a fifth, so pad things out. So we're halfway through the issue, essentially... Nothing has happened. He had great ideas for Iron Man, and then he was like, oh, crap, I got to get another Uncanny Avengers great issue Great ideas for written. Iron Man? Uh, he's made yeah. the flagship X-Men book the best it's been since Hickman left. But yeah, this one, maybe he's maybe he's too many titles, not enough ideas to go around. I don't know. That's me projecting, but I just don't like this issue. So Man- Monet tries to save the issue by announcing that she and Quicksilver have, quote, a lead. Now, Cap asks zero questions about the lead. Quicksilver <laughs> clearly has no idea what the hell Monet's talking about. Yes. But they head off to investigate this lead on the new MILFs. So this lead is that Penance has Quicksilver take her to a fancy pants perfume store. You hang out a lot of perfume stores? Oh yeah. This I, is okay. my So maybe my you place. can tell me. Uh <laughs> she says that she recognizes a scent that the Fenris twins were wearing that can only be purchased at this store. Very, very yeah. exclusive. Yeah. I, I can buy that. Okay, it's a comic book. It's a clue. We have a connection here. What I don't buy is that Fenris happens to be at this store right now. Now, Ruben, as our perfume and cologne expert on the show, do, do these products go bad quickly? Do you have to buy them every day, every week, every hour? How frequently do you, have, how frequently do you shop for new cologne? That's a good cologne? question. How often do I shop? Um, I don't shop for cologne, but no, I think, they, I think it lasts for a while. My wife's gotten me a few bottles. 
And that's, that's what I would have thought. So I, I hope they last for a while. Otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> She's being very polite, but yeah. So I've the idea that Fedris happened to be, happened to be here buying more perfume while they're part of Captain Krakoa's evil schemes, they, yeah. I, the coincidence is just too much for my little brain. I didn't, I didn't buy it. So they have a fight. The twins get away because Monet and Quicksilver have to prevent the building from collapsing. But then it turns out that Quicksilver let them get away and planted his and Monet's Avengers ID cards on them as trackers, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Monet and Quicksilver then start making out with each other, still holding up the broken column. Yeah, so the this part was collapse. this part was so weird. Out of came nowhere. out of nowhere. I was like, did they have a past history? Like, what the hell is going on? And it kind of started when they were like running for this investigation. He's like grabbing her waist in a strange way. But yeah, it was. This is super weird to me. I was like, where did this come this, from? I mean, are there a lot of Monet Quicksilver shippers out there in comics now? <laughs> I don't want to Google like, it. I'm not going like, to Google it. Oh my God, finally. <laughs> Rule 34 Monet Quicksilver. I'm not going to Google that. So, yeah. so would their celebrity couple name, would it be Monetro? Monet plus Pietro. <laughs> yeah. Or would it be Penisilver? Penis oh plus Quicksilver. Oh my God, Penisilver. <laughs> I think they got Penisilver from what was going on in this. <laughs> <laughs> I think they may need something. They may have cost yes. something. I don't know. Okay, so by my reckoning, that's two dumb scenes taking up the first 22 pages <laughs> of a 22-page issue. One scene, two pages left. Give me something, Jerry Duggan. Give, give me something. So this last scene takes place at the Daily Bugle inside the office of Ben Urich, reporter, and now somehow owner of the Daily Bugle. I really wish I knew what book that happened. Uh, Cap arrives. He's arranged for Urich to meet a witness whom the X-Men are protecting. I do approve of Cap correctly using whom here. So. <laughs> issue on the upswing already. We've got some nice grammar. Yeah, okay. The witness walks in, and it's it's Wilson Fisk, Kingpin, husband of Bloody Mary, current Black King of the Hellfire Club, on loan from one of Jerry Duggan's better books, Invincible Iron Man. And this, I was legit surprised here. Did you know this was happening, or were you also kind of surprised? That he was going to come in? That the witness was going to be Wilson Fisk. I kind of thought it was Wilson, because I was just like, who else was there? Had you- Maybe you mentioned that last time we we talked about this. Is yeah. that, am I making that up? I think I, I think in fact you had said that. So you he, I mean, they were a bunch of um, diplomats, right? And they all died. It just in my brain, it was like the only human that got out was Wilson. So yeah. Well, you were right, and uh, I I think it's kind of a, a cool reveal. He's not the most trustworthy witness. Yeah, no. I when I saw that, I was like, uh, I don't think you'd want to write a newspaper article saying Wilson. Here's Fisk. my source. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Uh, Kingpin does want to clear one thing up. The X-Men are not protecting him. He's protecting them, which is 100% true. So, so far, he's telling the truth. Uh, so, yeah, final scene, final two pages. For me, far and away, best pages of the book. I still kind of hate the art. The airbrushy coloring does not look right to me. Put it on the side of a van, not in a Marvel comic book. Putting that aside, the action, the composition are fine. Faces not to my taste. I, I really think the coloring here is a lot of what's making me not like the faces. They all have this weird, too much makeup look to them. This issue felt like Duggan had a not a whole lot he wanted to accomplish and 22 pages to fill up. Again, maybe it should have been a four-issue mini instead of five. The team does have a new way now to track the MILFs back to their base, maybe right back to the nuclear bomb, which wasn't actually mentioned in Ms. Marvel again, but we'll complain about that next week. Now, the Kingpin reveal was, to me, actually exciting not enough to fill up an issue. I was going to be more generous here, but this issue stinks. 
It's a five and a half out of ten. I've just lowered my score. I, I had to out of honesty. Try, I try to be positive here, but it's not a good issue. So, oh my gosh, ooh, but am I hilarious. being too hard on this book? No, I, I'm with you. It was just, it was bad. I'd call it garbage. Capital G garbage. You have a, a number to go with your capital G? Um, yeah, I'm trying it at five five. I mean, it's not. It was funny <laughs> in a laughing at kind of way, but hey, we'll we'll take it. We like some yeah. Laughs. It was it was not good, which shocked me because he's been doing some good issues lately. Um, it really did feel like this was the one he didn't have time to maybe, write. Maybe put this off to the you know towards the deadline and how to come up with something. I don't I don't know. I'm projecting here. Whatever yeah. it was, let's hope that the end of this this story picks up a little. We didn't even get to see Captain Krakoa this issue. No, that's the only plot point I'm interested in. Right, like they kind of again alluded to. Who is he? We gotta. We know who he is. I'm just like, just tell us. Get on. Like we kind of already know who it is, right? It's Hydra Cap. That seems to be the leading theory. Yeah. It's not going to shock me at this point when that is what happens. But maybe Captain Krakoa will turn out to also be Wilson Fisk. Now that'll be a shock. Okay, that would surprise me. Yeah, that would be cool. Not the body type I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on to our final book of this podcast, Jean Grey, number three of four, the penultimate issue. Obsession, written by Louise Simonson, art by Bernard Chang, colors by Marcella Maiolo, letters by Ariana Mayer, and design by Jay Bowen, just Jay Bowen. So we've been reading this Jean Grey miniseries. It seemed to kind of sort of come out of Jean's apparent death at the Hellfire Gala, but was really an excuse for Louise Simonson to revisit moments of Jean's life, to have Jean explore mentally if things might have gone better if she'd made different choices at a pivotal time. Premise of Jean Grey number one was, what if I didn't wipe the memories of us original five X-Men after we went back in time after a visit to the future? And the answer was nothing good. Premise of Jean Grey number two was, hey, what if I let Logan pilot that shuttle through the radiation storm so that I didn't end up in J Jamaica Bay? Dead. Now, the answer again was nothing good. But then something happened in between issues two and three of this series. What happened was issue 16 of Immortal X-Men, right? A series that had seemed unconnected until a hope and exodus wandering across a desert controlled by Mother Righteous found Jean Grey kind of trapped in her own mind, saying the same words we had seen her say in the Jean Grey miniseries. Recontextualized everything. Now, it seemed like Jean and Hope and Exodus and all those other mutants and Immortal, they seemed to be stuck in the white-hot room, the abode of the Phoenix. So I thought this might change everything about this miniseries, which... It really doesn't. It is acknowledged here in Jean Grey number three. We see Jean dimly perceiving the presence of, of hope. We get an editor's note on the title and credits page directing confused readers to Immortal, immortal X-Men number 16. Can you imagine someone only picking up this Jean Grey miniseries and seeing that weird stuff happen in the background? That'd be really confusing. <laughs> like an old school X-Fan who hasn't been keeping up on Krakoa at all. Yeah. And, oh, Louise Simons and Jean Grey, I'll buy that. Yeah, why the hell are hope and well, yeah that that, right, that reader is like going to be yelling at Gene? But other than that, the new context doesn't really change how the series works. This issue looks back at Inferno. That's the original Inferno, a giant Marvel crossover from the late 1980s, which is something I, to be honest, have not read in anything close to its entirety. There is an Inferno omnibus list on Amazon. If you're making out your early Christmas list, that omnibus is over 1,200 pages long. That doesn't even include the other 800 pages in the Inferno prologue collection that sets up where it all comes from. So, super complicated event. One of the biggest events ever. 
Yeah, I've never read it either. And it, I would say this, I, as I read this issue, I was like, huh, that seems like a lot of cool, interesting stuff. So I may ask the wife for that. I guess I got to ask for both, right? Both of the omnibuses. If you're going to ask for one, might as well go big, right? Yeah. So this event exists because Jean Grey was supposed to stay dead after Dark Phoenix. That's what Chris Claremont wanted. But editorial said, no, no, she's a popular character. We're bringing her back. And so the character of Madeline Pryor, who Claremont always intended, and this is what I've you know, read various places, so I, I think this is correct. Claremont always intended Maddie to be just a regular gal who happened to resemble Scott Summers' dead wife. Just supposed to be a regular person. But now, to bring the original Jean Grey back, he had to retcon Maddie as someone a lot more complicated. Now, a lot of stuff happens at this event, to say the least. But one thing that happens is that Maddie's son, Nathan Christopher, known to you and me as Cable, he was hidden away in cryogenic storage, then found by Scott and Jean, and then he was stolen by demons while Scott and Jean were distracted by Nanny and Orphan Maker. I did not expect to see Nanny and Orphan Maker here, but I was, hey, I had, I had not realized they were even part of Inferno. So that makes me want to read Inferno, because I like that. The question Jean asks in this issue is, what if that didn't happen? What if I heard baby Nathan getting kidnapped and I saved him? And the answer is, once again, nothing good. Maddie Pryor, just as big a pain in the ass either way. I don't think it's worth it to go through a blow-by-blow of this book. It's too tied up in continuity, and I'd get a bunch of it wrong. If you want all those details of what each panel connects to, listeners, go check out the write-up at HouseToAstonish.com. They go panel-by-panel, page-by-page, and really make some cool connections to books I haven't read, but maybe you have. Mm-mm. I recognize the old X-Force, like the, or not, sorry, not X-Force, X-Factor, when it was like the original five breaking off. And pretending to be non-mutants. Yeah. yeah that whole deal. And I remember cool their whole base was like some ship they stole from Apocalypse. And that was like, a, that was the status quo for like ever. So made me kind of wonder what happened to that idea. Our current Alpha flight is kind of, sort of, a little bit like that in that they're pretending to capture mutants when really they were rescuing. So it has a little bit of a, a DNA there. But what I think is important from this issue, for, for our purposes, is on page 18, where Gene is fighting Maddie, and the Phoenix Force shows up to make Gene an offer. I don't think that offer happened in the old Inferno story. I think it's new. I think it's happening now in the White Hot Room. The Phoenix Force says, quote, I brought Madeline to life. I can lead you back to life if you accept me as I am, my darkness and my light. Now, Gene tells the Phoenix Force that, screw you, I'm not playing. Not a direct quote. What she actually says is, I won't be used as Madeline was used. And the Phoenix says, then die, Jean Grey. So this seemed to be her path back to being alive in the main continuity. And she didn't take it, which is kind of interesting because we all presume that after the next issue, she'll be back. But this seemed like her off-ramp and she didn't take it, which is kind of cool. So from here, we see death and destruction following Jean imagined what if, just like we did twice before. And at the end, Jean is out of ideas. She says, I accepted the Phoenix Force. I sent it to others. I rejected it. Every choice means death and destruction. What else should I have done? And the answer she gets is, why are you asking us? And that answer comes from a whole bunch of other Jean's gray. A couple of Silver Age Jean's here. We got Dark Phoenix Jean, a 1990s Jean, Age of Apocalypse Jean Gray. All these cool, cool, you know, these cool costumes that uh, the artist gets to draw. It looks kind of neat. And they say to our Gene, I mean, you're the one who created this mess. Why are you asking us? So what's going to happen in the next and final issue of the series? I'm hell if I know. Do you have any guesses, Ruben? One of these personalities is going to accept the Phoenix offer 
and replace the current. I I kind of like that. I, that's interesting. We have all these different Jean Greys that she's been over the years, and I guess if this one doesn't want to be the Jean Grey Phoenix, maybe another one will. I like that guess. I don't know if it's true, but I like it. Uh, the next issue of the series will be its last, and is going to be entitled Ashes to Ashes. So, yeah, this was a confusing read, largely my own fault for not having read Inferno. I'll put it on my ever-expanding to-read pile. But the solicit for the final issue promises all secrets reveal. And Marvel solicits wouldn't lie to me, would they, Ruben? <laughs> never. Never. I want to say this, though. Like, how many secrets are there? I, I don't feel like this has been a secret-ridden series, so that's sort of a cop-out in my mind. There's one secret. How is she coming back? <laughs> now, I think the Bernard Shang art here looks really fantastic. Her Jean, Jean Grey looks great. It draws fun demons. A really sinister-looking Mr. Sinister. Uh, the colorist, Marcelo Maiolo, pulls off the distinction between like, present and flashback nicely, which makes the confusing issue a little less confusing, so thank you to the colorist. If you just want to see some great Jean Grey-related art, including a very skimpily-dressed Madeline Pryor, this is the book for you. Lots of very Halloween-appropriate art for this Halloween week. So overall, ah, I'm kind of at a loss for how to rate this, right? I'm kind of, I was hoping for more clarity on what's going on for an immortal. I didn't really expect to get it, but I was hoping for it. Uh, I'm going to kind of punt on this and give it uh, just a seven out of 10. It's a good book. I just, I feel like I'm not appreciating its virtues as much as some people will. I mean, people who are well versed in all things Inferno, you may love this, or maybe there's things wrong with it that I also don't know. If you're a relative noob to all things Inferno, this is not going to unconfuse you. Uh, wh where are you going to come down on this woman? I still feel like this is just dark multiverse. And ever since I drew that parallel, I have a hard time being excited about the series. A white hot room, Ruben. Been yeah. around forever. Never made sense, but it's been around forever. This whole series, in my mind, really is just like a checklist series where it's like, oh, I got to read that Jean Grace series, right? Oh, I got to read this other one. I mean, all this, I, I did think that the Inferno stuff was interesting, but I was like, oh, I should actually just read Inferno. That should be, um, I don't know, a, a story that just tells me you go read the better version of this story is not that exciting. So I'll, I'm going to go six. But I do want to see, I, I did like the connectivity with Immortal, and it's nice to see that that actually happened. And yeah. I, this I is kind of a way she comes back. fleshed out and that it's meaningful for both series, and it's not just a ad hoc, oh, let's make them look like they cross over that was tacked on afterwards. I, I, I yeah. hope there's real meat to it. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, so that's it for today's show. Next week, our only completely new book will be X-Men number 28, where the cover makes it look like a fight between Juggernaut and Firestar. That could be fun. We'll also take a look at those two books that we skipped this week, which are Ms. Marvel, The New Mutant, number three of four, and Realm of X, number three of four. And that's our show. So, uh, Ruben, uh, what should listeners do with themselves after all their trick-or-treating this week? Uh, just just breeze through that Inferno series, right? That didn't seem very long. All 1,200 pages, and after that, <laughs> that's your homework. There will be a quiz. We'll see yes. you next time. All right.